Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Now, for the record, this is November 26th. This is Lesson 12 in the book of Ecclesiastes. So anyway, good to good to see you all today, and we're going to we're going to be uh, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse thirteen, and hopefully go through the end of chapter ten. I don't know how your your Bible's laid out, but when I turn the page on chapter ten, all I see is eleven and twelve, and they're right there. So that's where we're headed. Uh, we'll have three more weeks after today, and. So we'll do 11 next week and 12 the next and then maybe have a little bit of a recap application uh, the, the following week. And then we'll be taking a break for two weeks, uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. We'll, we won't have Sunday school or prayer meeting. We'll only have the, um, the worship service at 11. So let's, uh, Scott, would you get that door back to us? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, now we thank you for the great gift and blessing that you've given us to be together here on the Lord's Day. We thank you for your word that you have kept for us and provided for us to this day, uh, your living word. Uh, that is living and active and uh, in, in your light we find light and so we ask for your light today we pray that we would know more of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to align our lives with him and so come please and minister to us by your spirit I thank you for each person in the room today and maybe others that would listen another time I pray that you would minister to them according to their need uh, and desire and we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I had already studied the last part of chapter 9, so Monday, which is usually my, my plan on Monday to begin to, to study and prepare for the, the week, I began, I read through uh, chapter 10. It's only 20 verses. <clears throat> and usually I try to read it uh, two or three times before I look at any commentaries. But as I did, I thought, boy, what is this? You know, how does this fit the <clears throat> book of Ecclesiastes? It seems <clears throat> like, a, like 20 uh, loosely combined Proverbs, kind of like the book of Proverbs. I, don't, I was wondering, what is, <clears throat> what is this here for? But obviously, we have a high view of Scripture, so we believe it's there for some reason in the book of Ecclesiastes and then in the Bible itself. So I, was, I didn't really gain a whole lot of comprehensive understanding of the flow of the, of the chapter. So I was looking forward to looking at my commentaries. And um, I have three or four that I use. A couple of them are quite technical, and usually they give me some good insights on, on things. But even those guys didn't do much with the book, uh, I mean, with the chapter. And, uh, but I thought, but my friend David Gibson, I will get something from him. He skipped chapter 10 in his book, so, so I was uh, 
beginning about Monday afternoon, I was beginning to panic a little bit because I feel a responsibility to have something for you uh, on Sunday. And <clears throat> and I remembered a, a story that I heard. I think it must be 52 years ago. So I, if I don't get it just right, you'll 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 have compassion on me. But <clears throat> I think I was a sophomore at Texas A&M. <laughs> and I was, if I remember this right, I was going to a weekend retreat held by the Navigators. Y'all know the Navigators, and they were a very active group there. And I remember they were they were considered the really spiritual guys. They were called uh, the Navigator Never Daters because they were just poor. You know, I didn't like that part too much, but but I went to this retreat, and as far as I remember, at that retreat. There was a, a guy there who's teaching through the book of First Thessalonians. I remember that. And um, this is the first time I've been to a retreat like this where we just started the Bible for Friday night and all day Saturday. And uh, he was talking about uh, meditation on the Scripture. And he told a story about a, um, uh, a, a well-known um, ichthyologist. That's a fish person, right? Ich Ichthyology in that study of fish? Yes. I think so, okay. His name was uh, Louis Agassiz, and this, uh, this story happened back in 1874. And he was well known for his, uh, for his expertise in not only uh, fish, but insects and other, other animals. And, um, and he had a student named Samuel Scudder. And he was a young, young man coming to the college. I don't know where he was. But he was eager to study under uh, under Professor Agassiz. I don't know how to say his name. A G A S S I Z. Um, by the way, I lost track of this. I, I never could find this story. Um, but Google can do amazing things, so I googled it, and I have it right here. So I was really eager to to uh, to see it. So um, so Samuel uh, met his the the uh, acclaimed professor. And he says, sir, I'm looking forward to being in your classes and I want, I want you to be my mentor and I've heard a lot about your expertise and, um, and I want to study under you. And the, uh, the doctor said, well, I'm not doing a class on insects, but I'm doing a class on fish. So when do you want to get started? And he said, I want to get started right now. So he went to the, to the cabinet and got a fish with a, in a, you know, a dead fish in a bottle of formaldehyde and he said, take this fish and look at it. And um, I'll come back in a little bit and ask you what you've seen. So he took the fish and he began to, to uh, look at the fish. And, you know, it just was a fish. And so he didn't really know what he was supposed to look at. But he noticed a few things about the fish. And in about uh, a half hour, he came, the, the professor came back and said, what did you see? And he told him a few things. It's got scales and, you know, just kind of general things. He said, okay, well, that's a, that's a good choice. Um, that's, you know, you're getting started. Go look again, and, I'll, and I'll, I'm going to go do something else, and I'll come back in a little while. Well, uh, he said, I didn't know what else I could learn about this fish, but I went and did what the professor said to do. And I noticed a few more things. He said, by the way, you can't use a magnifying glass. You can't read anything about it. I just want your observation and your, your uh, you can feel of the fish. So, so Samuel said, oh, I'll 
put my finger down his throat and opened up his mouth and saw that he had sharp teeth and and uh, uh, different things that I could learn about the fish. And so the professor returned and said, well, tell me some more things that you've learned. And, and uh, he did. He said, well, that's good. And oh, and he said, also, uh, drew the drew the, the fish. And, the, and he said, well, good, a pencil or good eyes that can help you to, uh, to see. Um, and so then he said, but you're not looking very carefully at this fish. And he said, sir, I've been looking at him for two hours now. I've been looking real carefully. He said, no, we're just getting started. Well, the long part of the story is that uh, the professor put him through this exercise for three days. And by the end of the third day, he was amazed at what he had learned about the fish just by, uh, excuse me, just by looking at the fish. And he said that not only transformed his life about how to look at fish, but how to look uh, at life. Well, uh, I don't remember exactly how the, the Bible teacher used that as a, uh, I don't remember the detail of how he used that as a lesson for meditation on the scripture, but I thought about that and I thought, well, uh, the commentaries aren't helping me too much and Dr. Gibson has abandoned me, so I'm going to try that. So I just began to read the, the text over and over again, read it slowly, maybe read some passages backwards in a sense, and, and just began to, to think about that. Uh, these, uh, the, the, mainly chapter 10. And uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. And I'll tell you what I began to notice, that as I... As I read and examined God's Word, uh, His Word read and examined me. And don't we, isn't that what, uh, what Hebrews 4, what, 12? Who can quote Hebrews 4, 12? The Word of God is... Yeah. What, what about the, the the end part there, Mark? It's critical thoughts and the intents of the heart. Yeah, it exposes our thoughts and the intents of our heart. Anyway, it was a wonderful experience for me uh, to begin to, to do that. And I, and I thought, well, that's a good plan all the time. But I just want to commend that to you. The, the slow reading and meditation on, uh, on the Word of God. And I saw three themes in chapter 10. One uh, is the impact of foolishness on wisdom, and then the power of our words. And then there's something through chapter 10 that talks about kings and government. And I wonder sometimes when Solomon brings that up in his study, in his writing, I wonder if he's talking about himself. But the big thing that I, or one of the most helpful things that I saw was that chapter 10 obviously doesn't stand alone. And as you know, the, the chapter divisions usually have have no relevance to the to the original composition but uh, as I read chapter 10 and, and I knew what chapter 9 13 through 18 was I saw that 9 13 through 18 was the setup for chapter 10 so let's read chapter 9 verses 13 through uh, through 18 and then we'll see where it goes goes from there <coughs> Ecclesiastes 9.13 I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it 
And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now, by the way, I think this is connected back to, um, uh, to verse 12, talking about the fish being caught in a net and a bird being caught in a snare. So here's a little city that suddenly is unexpectedly being besieged by this great king. So um, now verse 15. So the city's being besieged, greatly overwhelmed by this great king. They were building siege works against it. Which, by the way, uh, siege works is the same as, translates as the same word as net back up in 12, where the, how the um, fish was caught. Okay, verse 15. But there was found in it a poor man, a poor wise man, and by his wisdom uh, delivered the city. Now Solomon doesn't tell, him, doesn't tell us what, how he did it. That's apparently not necessary for the story. But by his wisdom, he delivered the city. And so that's a great example of, uh, of wisdom. But then now Solomon's going to do what he's been doing from our study for the last two or three weeks. And that is to um, talk about the limitations of wisdom. And that even, even wisdom in and of itself uh, is not the final answer for the for the way to navigate through life. Because look what happens. Now, I, I titled this section The Vulnerability of Wisdom to a Little Folly. Um, so at the end of verse uh, 15, so by his wisdom he delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say uh, that wisdom is better than might. So he's saying he still believes wisdom is is good. It's better than might. Later on, he'll say it's even even better than the weapons of war. Though, uh, verse 16, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So here he is uh, talking about the limitation of wisdom, how easily it can be uh, uh, disdained and unraveled. The we don't know, of course, what happened here. Uh, there's some idea from some of the Hebrew guys that say that this was his, that, that he had pr proposed a plan that would have delivered the city, but the townspeople didn't want to go with it, so maybe the city was taken after all. But, but the point is, uh, Solomon said he had good wisdom, and we'll go with, with the idea that the city was delivered. But once the danger was gone, the people <coughs> forgot what the poor man had done, and they not only forgot him, um, they disdained him and disdained his wisdom. Um, and you can kind of see maybe how it happened in verse 17. The words of the wise, so here's speaking of this poor wise man, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. <coughs> Meaning the ruler is shouting among fools that agree with him. So he's turning... He's turning the attitude of the people against this wise, this wise man. But Solomon's showing a contrast. You know, wise words can be calm and, and quiet, but foolish words are often loud and boisterous. And then verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. But, here's the caveat again, the vulnerability of wisdom, but one sinner destroys much good. One one part that can be great good come from the wisdom of someone, and, and he's talking about a city and a community here, but it just takes one sinner to destroy much good. So this is the, 
we're going to see this in the next uh, section. This is the vulnerability of wisdom because it can be undone so easily. Can you think of an example of that? Billy? Men are men and women are women and now they're not. Okay. <laughs> okay, well that's <laughs> maybe you ought to unpack that a little bit more for us. <laughs> it's so obvious. It's so clear. And that's an extreme example of you know, because of our sin, people you know, want to be something they're not against the ordinance of creation and against okay. you know, God's God's law. And we've had millennia of uh, cultural agreement that a man's a man, a woman's a woman, and in what, 20 years we can unravel all that in our, in our culture, okay? Yep. And there's a lot of shouting about it. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Okay, other examples? I, I thought about looking at the kings of Judah. You can have a great king, and then his son comes along and dismantles everything the king you know, did with the reforms, and, and he can... You can see that in, in our own uh, leadership in our, in our country, perhaps. Any other ideas about how, how can a little bit of foolishness dismantle or destroy the effect of wisdom? Okay, well, let's keep... Uh, oh, John? When you look at um, wisdom being overthrown, sometimes or, or disregarded, like as in a poor man, Proverbs 24-7 says, wisdom is too high for a fool. So it often depends on who is the hearer. They won't, they won't accept wisdom. Okay. Yeah, good, that's fine. That's, apparently that's what this ruler knew. He could shout foolish things to them and they would, they would go along with it. They would reject the, the wise man. Okay, let's go to chapter 10 and look at verse one, a very well-known passage. But now you can see how the story about the little city has set up this, uh, this lesson now that Solomon is going to, uh, uh, to bring to us. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So this is some of that Hebrew parallelism. The, first, the, the, the second part uh, explains the first. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So something that should be pleasant and enjoyable to smell uh, to, the, uh, to the olfactory glands. Uh, a fly, and interesting hearing all the, the Hebrew guys do talk about some of this stuff. Are these dead flies or are these, are these flies that died in the ointment? Or, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> something that was very beautiful now and smelled very good doesn't smell that way. It's, so this is an example of, of uh, how a little, just one little fly and a big pot of perfume or ointment can not only impact it a little bit, but actually infuses the whole thing and make the whole, the whole uh, perfume uh, stink. So here's his lesson again. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And this, uh, this word outweighs, it, it literally means a little folly can be heavier, will be heavier, will have, can have more weight than lots of wisdom. So it was a, uh, it was de definitely a, a scales uh, kind of thing, kind of thing there. So let's talk about that. How does a little folly 
Well, let me. I want you to see two things here. One, there's the example of the of the story that the folly that dismantled the wisdom that saved the city was from someone outside of the of the poor uh, the poor wise man. It was an external. It was folly external to him, and that's probably what we think about when we see this <clears throat> see this passage. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. But there apparently is another way to look at this. John, what's the other way? The thing that came to mind to me is is one person who normally has a course of action of wisdom and honor. They've been brought up a certain way to do certain things to avoid those problems, but they give way to sin and simply one single episode. You, get, you drive drunk once and you kill someone and you're in prison and just one episode of... Uh, in a life that's otherwise seems to be ideal can wreak incredible havoc. Yeah, I think that's that's what it, that's that's the other alternative to how to read this. You might see uh, my quote from from uh, Doug Wilson <coughs> under the ten one passage: "A little folly in a wise man is far more visible than a little wisdom in a fool. A wise man uh, clearly has more to more to lose." And I think John, you're right on target with that. So uh, John, John says, I, I'm going to ask you, well, what are some examples? Maybe you don't want to talk about your own life, but how can we that have the wisdom of the Word and Word of God and of salvation, how can a little bit of folly in our lives uh, dismantle um, something good that we've done or something uh, right? Or John said one drunk driving episode can do it. What else? How else? How else does a little foolishness in our lives dismantle wisdom? Uh, You could be sharing the gospel with someone and kind of on that course with someone. Okay. And then it's not drunk driving, obviously, but let something get in the way of that, and then you stumble and sin in a way that they can see that. Okay. And then it kind of... Like, it not in, I don't know, infects the way that they see Christianity and then lets them see that, oh, well, if he's doing that and he's telling me about God, then I can keep doing it or I can do that as well. Yeah, okay, good. So or we can destroy his, his own character and now he's not to be believed or trusted. We can neutralize our witness then, can we? Okay. All right, other, other ways. Haley? This is just kind of a general example, but you can have all kinds of knowledge of doctrine and yet not apply scripture. And so you may be wisdom, have wisdom in what you know, but if you're not applying scripture, then what benefit are you reaping from it? Okay, good. All right, so knowing a lot, looking wise, but not applying what we know. Okay. Uh, Steve? Perhaps when Moses struck the rock, Instead of speaking to the rock, hmm. and it, it, it couldn't enter into Wow. He might have said, Lord, just one thing. What's the big deal here? But wow, that's a good, that's a really good one. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things that can dismantle something good that I've done uh, with my wife, uh, Dixie. She's right over there. Uh, <laughs> I can dismantle something good with just a look. 
the wrong way. Or a word. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, but boy, how one word can dismantle a whole date night or whatever, you, you know, whatever's going on. Okay. Well, let's keep going. We're going to, this will kind of build on itself, I hope. So now he's going to, he's going to do a little bit of uh, contrast with the wise man and the, and the fool. So let's read uh, verses 2 and 3. A wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. By the way, there's no, there is no verb in uh, either part of, of uh, verse 2. A wise man's heart to the, to the right, a fool's heart to the left. I don't know if that means anything, but it just shows that uh, it, it, it shows the, uh, uh, the activeness and the directiveness of the heart. The heart is always active, always thinking, always believing, always reacting or, or acting. Um, we could have a pretty long conversation about the right and the left. And we know what that means politically or culturally, but there, uh, or the the uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the right and the left. Let's see the uh, uh, the right hand was often considered the stronger hand, but it's also known as the hand of authority and blessing. What's the greatest example of that? Where's Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, the, the place of authority and, and blessing. Remember, uh, uh, remember when Jacob was going to, I think I got this right, Jacob was going to bless Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he wanted to bless the younger but over the, over the elders, you know. And so he put the right hand on the younger, and remember, Joseph said, no, Daddy, you got this wrong. He said, no, I don't. I know exactly what I'm doing. So he put his right hand there. So I guess we don't need to go any further with, with, with what that means, but, um, but that's, he's picking up on that, on that, uh, that here. Um, so then verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, you know, walk just me, even when he's just living his, his life, he lacks sense. And by the way, in the ESV, you can't see it, but it says he doesn't have a heart. That's what that... Chapter 9. So, in, no, we're in chapter 10. <laughs> <laughs> I know that guy. I've heard his voice many times. So. Okay. So, the point is... Uh, he doesn't really even have a heart that that responds and that functions like it's like it's supposed to and he says to everyone uh, that he is a fool there's two ways you could read the, the second part of verse 3 when he's walking down the street he speaks well what what are two ways you can read the second part of verse 3 the way he's walking says he's a fool yeah he can't hide that everybody knows who, who said that God no, okay all right, what else could it could it mean? Just intentionally saying he's a fool. He could, yeah. But the word he could have could have a different uh, meaning to it. He's calling everybody else a fool. He's walking down the street and he's calling everybody else everybody else a fool. Okay, I'm going to keep moving here. Uh, verse four. So now we're we're back to this. Uh, 
um, to this idea of how do you how do you live under the totalitarian rule of a king? We saw that earlier in chapter eight. Uh, the king, uh, he's always right. So be careful how you uh, how you disagree with him. Now we not only have a totalitarian king, we have an angry king, and so we get a little bit of advice here in verse four. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So I think just to kind of get us through this, um, um, if, you, if, the, if the king gets angry with you, and this is kind of like a courtier or somebody in his court maybe, but it could apply to any kind of relationship with authority. If, you're, if your authority gets upset with you, don't just huff and leave, you know, leave, because that may cause you more trouble than, uh, uh, than you had before. But wisdom uh, would provide a calm answer, and when you provide a calm answer, then you may, you may put to rest the anger of the, of the leader. Let's see. Um, of course, there's lots of proverbs about that. Um, I think Proverbs 16:32, a soft answer turns away wrath. Um, Charles Bridges, a, a 19th century, um, I think he's a Scottish uh, Puritan kind of guy. He says, "A victory over ourselves is better than a victory over others." A victory over ourselves is better than a victory over others. So I think that was his commentary on this passage. Don't make it your goal to win the argument. Make it your goal to control yourself and and to uh, persuade uh, with compassion and care. The, the wisdom of composure will cause the ruler's anger to abate. A soft answer turns away wrath. You know, I think Proverbs 16.32 is the, the one about a wise man... Uh, is stronger than a city. I think that's what that what that's about. Okay, and then verses. Yeah, hey John. you you could also apply that wider to anyone in authority. And the thing that comes immediately to mind is when a police officer stops you. If you are calm and reasonable with an officer, almost always good is going to come out of that episode. Okay, but the minute you start showing that you are bucking his authority and you are resisting him, you can expect a bad result. <laughs> Maybe an expensive result. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Uh, this is great wisdom, isn't it, for any kind of authority and more to teach your children and grandchildren when they come home huffing and puffing about, you know, the boss said this or that. Um, it's not that we always take the... Well, we, we're careful. We want to, you know, hear the whole story, but to really help you know, our young people understand that authority is in place uh, normally for their good and for, you know, for what is right. Well, verse five, uh, verses five and six, we see an example of a foolish ruler. And he turns, he, he turns uh, the culture upside down that normally um, uh, people that, that have means and that have experience in leading are in places of authority. But he's got it just backwards, and I think it's another example how a ruler could have a could have a good administration, but he puts the wrong people in place. Maybe they're political um, promises or something like that. Okay, so verses five and six. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, 
as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich, and I don't think he means they're rich automatically or wise, but rich meaning uh, people that have experience in leading and, and maybe some means. So folly or foolishness is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. And he has this little parable. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And you can see this quote from Walter Kaiser. These errors are the natural fruit of partiality, tyranny, and despotism. Okay, now the next uh, three or four verses have an interesting uh, interpretation in the uh, uh, in the commentaries. One, in fact, you've seen in my little heading there, at chapter 10, 8 through 11, the dangers of living. It could be just the dangers of living in general. Life is dangerous, and and um, and Solomon continually helps us to see this. Looks like what Proverbs says, but it doesn't always work out that way. So that's kind of what he's saying here. But it could also be. Uh, living under a totalitarian ruler or working for a jerk or, or being under a teacher that's not fair and, and not right. How do, you, uh, how do you live that? How do you live under that? So, verse 8, He who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So that could just be an example of, of uh, when someone does evil that comes back, uh, comes back on, on them. But one other, at least one or two of the commentators I read said this could be an example of a uh, uh, of a work project. And remember, if this is, well, we believe this is Solomon writing this. I wonder if he's maybe describing his own administration because he had tens of thousands of slaves that worked for him. And notice uh, verse eight. Um, verse eight gives um, activities that were very uh, common in Solomon's uh, preparation for the temple. And that was uh, quarrying great big stones and then having lots of, uh, lots of timber that's being, uh, you know, that was being harvested. So he who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So perhaps, um, this could be just things don't always work out like you hope they would, but if it is describing work in a, you know, in a totalitarian uh, administration, he could say that can be dangerous uh, working there too. But I wanted to get to verse uh, ten because I think that's such an important verse for us, and let's keep it in uh, keep it in context here. Verse ten: If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So if you work in the yard, you probably learn this. You know, sharpen your hoe before you go work. I've learned it particularly with a chainsaw. Or a dull chainsaw is a terrible thing to have. <laughs> and uh, I've tried to cut down a tree and it was like, you know, it just wouldn't even go. And I, and I thought, what's wrong with this stupid saw? Well, it was an operator problem. But it takes time, you know, to sharpen that, sharpen that thing. But the point is that, that uh, 
We all have tools with what we do, whatever it may be, whether it's our profession or working in the yard or helping other people. And the wisdom here is that if we keep our tools sharp, that interestingly says, talks about the edge, the edge of the tool, keeping it sharp, we can be most effective and, and efficient. Uh, so what are some applications of this? The admonition to keep your tools sharp. Keep ourselves well read in the Word. Okay. Good, Julia. So, Julia, so that's a, that keeps your tool sharp for what purpose? What would you, why do you need that tool to be sharp? To defend the faith and to share the gospel okay. that you prepare. Good. Well, that's where I wanted to go, so I didn't pay you to say that, did I? <laughs> you could make that, you could say, when all else fails, read the instructions. Okay, good. Well, to, to take this to a little bit further application, I, uh, this is a, a quote from Charles Bridges. By the way, when my other commentaries didn't help me, I broadened out to two or three more, that, and Charles Bridges was one of them, and he's always good, but I, I liked him. And he, this quote that I have here for you is quoting uh, Bishop Hugh Latimer. Y'all know Bishop Latimer? Remember his story? Russ, what's... I couldn't quote it. I've read it recently, like in the last couple of years, but okay. the memory is... Russ, uh, Rice, you act like you know who... Yeah, I know who he is. I okay. Well, he was uh, Lat he Latimer was, uh, and Ridley. Yeah, yes. Ridley and Latimer. And, uh, they got crossways with Bloody Mary. Play, play the man. Right, and they burned at the at the stake. They actually kind of joked with each other as they walked to the yeah, stake. The crosses in Oxford, you can still see where they were burned. Really? <clears throat> well, listen to what Bishop Latimer said. When I am in a settled assurance about the state of my soul, Methinks that I am as bold as a lion. But when I am eclipsed in my comforts, I am of so fearful a spirit that I could run into a very mouse hole. And then uh, Charles Bridges continues, The secret of our strength is the recollection of our standing as a child accepted. We think not of the hardness of the fight, but of him who is ever with us ever sufficient for us. One promise of His grace is more powerful to hold us up than all the assaults of hell to throw us down. <coughs> so I would say, particularly thinking about keeping our edge sharp uh, in ministry and evangelism, but in ministry <coughs> to each other, um, I, I just really appreciate what, what these men are saying. And I think what they're saying is what we've, we've been saying to ourselves, and that is we need to marinate and preach the gospel to ourselves regularly so that the gospel becomes the lens through which we look at life, we look at ourselves, we look, uh, we look at others. Um, but it's that, but, but don't miss what they're saying here. And we, we reform people are a little bit concerned sometimes about emotion, but you read the Puritans, and they're not concerned about emotion. Emotion is built on the revelation of God through His through His Word. They're talking about experience here. Um, for example, um, uh, talking about His comforts, and uh, the secret of our strength is the recollection of our standing as a 
as a child accepted. That, but spending time with God in His Word, when uh, so that by the work of the Spirit, we we say that's true about me. That's a that that defines me and just walking in the in the reality of who we are as God's people. I think there's lots of places you could go uh, for that, uh, like uh, Psalm 27:4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I may well, I thought I had that memorized for you, but Psalm 27. Uh, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or uh, to meditate in His temple. And what I just want to kind of close our time here for a few minutes is um, just the great need to slow down and to meditate and read the Scriptures carefully and slowly. Um, which really was kind of what was forced on me this, this last week. Just the, the glory and wonder of just reading the Scriptures and particularly reading the Gospel story so that it realigns our, our thoughts. We, we look through the lens of the Gospel and, and our situation that those we're seeking to serve. And we're talking about keeping our, our, uh, our, our tools sharp um, so we can be effective in caring for one another. And I, I know for me, uh, I don't live in this reality as much, as much as I should, but when I do, two or three things happen to me. One, um, I'm aware of the love of the Lord Jesus for me personally, and so therefore, because our love is a, is a, 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 uh, it's a product of His love, then I love Him more, and I love my fellow believers more and I'm eager to speak of him have you ever got on the elevator and you knew you had an opportunity to speak the gospel to somebody but you but it was like somebody put tape on your mouth and you could not you, you could not find the words to even speak of the Lord Jesus Christ but I find that when my heart is happy in him I'm happy to speak of him and to, to point people to him so I just think about our uh, you know, our care for one another particularly, and that when we gather on Sunday morning, uh, and any other time we're together, but particularly on Sunday morning, I think we have a responsibility and an obligation to spend time meditating on His Word uh, slowly, uh, um, making a priority of spending time in His Word, so that when we come together, uh, we're ministering the Gospel. Let the Word of Christ, the Word of the Gospel dwell in you richly. Um, and so as we come together, we're admonishing, we're, we're instructing and helping one another. Well, just one last uh, little point here that's kind of interesting in verse uh, verse 5. Oh, sorry. I mean, that's Psalms. We're not in Psalms. Uh, Ecclesiastes 10, uh, 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Well, Man, the Hebrew guys just went crazy with this verse because it apparently doesn't say that particularly as clearly as um, as, it, as it could. But, um, let's see, let me find. Yeah, verse 5. One way to interpret that is 
my note there, I mean verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11, even the practical knowledge and skills of the expert do not totally eliminate dangers or guarantee success. So that could be one application. But the other one could be, if you keep this in the context of, of serving under a, a despot or, a, or working for a mean guy or having an unfair teacher, um, it could be that the royal snake may bite before it is charmed by the snake charmer, that is the master of the tongue, which I think that word um, translated charmer is, doesn't have the word charm in it. That's not, that's not the word. I think they're, they're making it charmer because it fits the context, but it really just means, well, I don't remember what it means, but it doesn't mean charmer. It means just a person, but uh, it can have a lot of, a lot of uh, application. But anyway, the, the point that maybe Solomon is making there, even if the wise man brings a soft answer to a, to a uh, um, you know to a totalitarian, um, lazy, evil leader, it still may not work out right. So he always likes to say those kinds of things uh, to us. So we have to be ready for that. Well, we didn't get through uh, with chapter ten. We'll finish that up and get into chapter 11 next week. Thank you.